0: turning your Bibles to Mark 13. You can also refer to Matthew 24. I'm going to be leaning on both of the chapters, but mostly walking through Mark 13. As we begin to look at a topic that theologians call eschatology, or the study of end times or last things. In 1925, the American poet T.S. Eliot wrote his masterpiece entitled, The Hollow Men. It was a reflection of his generally gloomy outlook on the direction of human history after the devastation of World War I. That terrible so-called war to end all wars left permanent scars in the minds and hearts of many. Pictures of bleak battlefields that were stripped of all trees, all vegetation, all life, looking more like a moonscape which had been pounded by artillery uh, for years, deep craters, mud, and death everywhere. So T.S. Eliot looked at that, he looked at human history, and he wondered bleakly where it was all heading. Uh, In the poem he spoke of men with heads filled with straw, men without eyes groping through a valley with dying stars in which little by little all energy just seems to leak out or drain out slowly from the universe until nothing is left. Uh, The poem ended famously with these words, This is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Well, that's T.S. Eliot's opinion or prophecy, poetic prophecy, Uh, but it's just, in my opinion, another example of the fascination that human beings have with where this is all heading. Where are we going In all of this and more specifically with the conceptions of the end of the world. Doomsday scenarios, apocalyptic visions, dystopian societies, clawing out some existence on a dying planet after World War III has wiped out most of the human race or some other such thing. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity in the hearts of men but they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So we have a sense of a movement towards something, but we don't know what it is. We can't figure out where we've come from. We don't really understand the history that leads up to this. And we don't know, even James says, what's going to happen tomorrow, but we have a fascination in it. We're interested in it. And so, in our culture, especially movie makers, cash in on this kind of thing. They depict Earth uh, in its final stage after some thermonuclear holocaust, like in the movie Planet of the Apes or Dr. Strain's love, or others, or perhaps a pandemic which wipes out all of Earth's population, such as in the movie I Am Legend, or some kind of ecological disaster, uh, climate change, global warming, or some kind of solar flares like in 2012 or the day after tomorrow, or a blight that kills all vegetation except corn. Uh, The okra just went and corn is going soon. That's interstellar. Or even alien invasions. That's the war of the worlds. Or conquest by artificial intelligence robots. That's the matrix. I'm sure I've missed a few of the ways that the world ends. Um, If you ask me, have you seen all those movies, I'm not going to answer. But at any rate, (laughs) how exactly will the world end? And how will we know when it's coming? Is there anything we can do about it? These are questions that burn in the hearts of normal people. And they burn in the hearts of the disciples of Jesus as well. These are the questions that Jesus Christ seeks to answer in Mark 13 and also Matthew 24 and 25. One of the key issues he brings up are, uh, is, what is what are the signs uh, by which we can see the impending end of the world as it approaches. So Jesus amazingly begins in the account we're going to look at today, Mark 13, 1 through 13, by talking about things that will happen commonplace in every generation and are no certain signs of the immediate end of the world. But in the midst of it, as we're going to talk about next week more especially, is the central purpose of history, the unfolding of history, and that is the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so the unfolding of uncertain signs that are true in every generation is a matrix or a canvas on which the uh, the painting, the masterpiece of the spread of the gospel, what we call the external journey, goes on. So today we begin a fascinating and vital journey into true prophecy, not the prophecy of movie makers or of American poets. But the prophecy that flows from the mind of God, the only one who really knows the future is the sovereign God who decrees it. Because he can say about anything that any created being wants to do, it will not take place, it will not happen. God is sovereign and therefore when he tells us what's going to happen, we need to listen. Now it begins with Christ's shocking prediction there in Jerusalem uh, in Mark thirteen two: Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So we need to understand the significance of this moment. We get it more clearly in the Gospel of Matthew uh, at the end of Matthew 23 and on into into 24 uh, as Jesus has finished His his, uh, judgment, His words of judgment, uh, His seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees and condemns them and then the glory leaves the temple. So in the old covenant, the glory cloud represented the presence of God, the special presence of the omnipresent God with His people, the Jews. God's glory cloud entered the tabernacle when Moses had finished constructing it. Uh, The glory cloud entered the tabernacle and filled it, symbolizing the special presence of God there in the tabernacle. So, also, centuries later, when Solomon uh, completed the construction of his temple, uh, the glory cloud entered the temple and filled it. But sadly, tragically, when the Jews forsook the true God, the only God for idols, and did this over centuries, the glory cloud departed from the temple, and Ezekiel saw it in Ezekiel chapter 10. He beheld the glory cloud. Uh, called sometimes the Shekinah glory, you're not going to see that word, but it just means the dwelling glory um, of God, the dwelling glory departing the temple because of Israel's great wickedness and idolatry, the glory leaving the temple. That rendered the temple really nothing more than a empty or desolate pile of stones, which then the Gentiles were about to flood in and destroy, then the Babylonians at that point in the kindness of God, a remnant of Jews, a very small remnant compared to the original population that entered the promised land, 42,000, came back and were given permission by their Gentile overlords to rebuild a smaller version of the temple, which they did. And the story is told in Haggai and uh, also in Ezra and Nehemiah. But now in Matthew 23 and 24, the true glory of God the dwelling glory, the incarnate glory of God leaves the temple. He walks out because the Jews have officially rejected Him from being their Messiah. In Matthew 23, seven times He says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He condemns them. They are spiritual leaders and representatives of the Jewish nation. Jesus said in Matthew 23, they sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them. They do represent Um, the the law of God, but they were deeply corrupted men. They were whitewashed tombs that looked beautiful on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. As Jesus says in in Mark 12, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. That's who they were. And it culminates with these devastating words in Matthew 23, 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. An incredibly important statement. Behold, look, your house is left to you desolate. For, another important word, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 24, 1, and also in Mark 13, Jesus then left the temple, walks out. So it's not just the actions, it's the words and what he says. Your house is left desolate. It's empty because I'm walking out and I'm not coming back until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So out he goes. It's a hugely significant moment in redemptive history. Jesus is the ultimate prophet from God. He is the one who has been sent after all these other servants have been sent and have been mistreated and killed then the, uh, the owner, the absentee owner of the vineyard sends his son, but they reject him and they are conspiring to kill him. And so therefore, Jesus is leaving, he's departing, and Israel's house, the temple, is going to be left desolate, that is, vacant, empty. It's going to be stripped of glory. Why? Because he is leaving, and he is the incarnate glory of God. Hebrews 1, 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The glory cloud just symbolized Jesus. Jesus is the glory of Israel. He's the glory of God, and he's leaving. Because of Israel's wicked unbelief, they had rejected Jesus. They would officially do it at his trial, but they had already made the decision that if anyone declared that Jesus was the Messiah, they would be cast out of the synagogue. John chapter 9. So they've rejected him, and out he goes. The glory had departed, the temple uh, indeed, Jerusalem itself will be nothing more, more than, spiritually than an empty, vacant set of piles of stone ready, again, for the Gentiles to come in and destroy. And that's what's going on. At this moment, the disciples, who frequently weren't on message, do you get that sense? They're frequently just missing what's happening. They represent us. And so, they come up at that moment, and one of them in particular just can't get over how beautiful the temple is. So look at verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. This is really remarkably poor timing, but it's significant as well. Herod's temple was indeed an impressive temple. Some of those stones were truly massive. Josephus, the contemporary Jewish historian, a generation later from Jesus, uh, tells us that some of the stones were as large as forty five feet long, twelve feet high, and eighteen feet in width, a single stone, one point, pro, pro, approximately one point five million pounds. astonishing uh, furthermore, the building itself was lavishly beautiful. King Herod was a, a vicious, a wicked tyrant he 's the one that ordered the slaughter of the newborns in order to kill Jesus after he was born. He's just a terribly wicked man. But he thought to ingratiate himself to his people by adorning the temple with stones of marble and with a lot of gold and other glitter. And so it was rather a very impressive, impressive building. Now, human beings in general marvel at human achievement. We get blown away by what humans can do. And humans can do amazing things created in the image of God. But from the Tower of Babel, then through Nebuchadnezzar gloating over Babylon, this great Babylon that I've built for my own glory and display of my splendor, et cetera, et cetera. We are drawn in and amazed at human achievements. God is not. As Stephen says in Acts 7, quoting the scripture, God says, heaven is is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being? So God's not impressed. God instead yearns for a people characterized by broken-hearted humility and faith and repentance. That's what he's yearning for and the Jews did not have it. And so Jesus makes this shocking prediction. Verse 1 and 2, As Jesus was leaving leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So Jesus frequently used object lessons, pointing to things, look at it. But this is very much the topic. They were the ones calling his attention to the stones, to the temple. So that's what they're talking about. Do you see them? Look at them. Look at all these great buildings. Now I don't know whether his hand swept over the temple complex itself or the entire city. As you know historically, the whole thing was going to be destroyed, not just the temple. So it could be he was talking about the entire city of Jerusalem as he wept over Jerusalem, as he lamented over Jerusalem. But specifically the topic there was the temple. Either way, These words would have been shocking to these Jewish disciples. Uh, Every stone placed on top of another will be toppled down. This entire place will be leveled. It's going to be raised. Humanity in pride builds upward and goes lofty and high like in Isaiah 2. These lofty towers and these cedars of Lebanon and all this rising up. It's just a, a symbol of human pride like the Tower of Babel. God casts it downward. So this is nothing less than the prediction of the total destruction, not just of the temple, I believe, but of the entire city of Jerusalem. Now that prediction would be fulfilled a generation later. Uh, In AD 70, Josephus, contemporary at that time, the historian, Jewish historian, uh, tells the story of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in the year 70. Uh, It was the decisive event of the first Jewish Roman War. Uh, It was followed by the fall of Masada uh, three years later in AD 73. The Roman army was led by the future Emperor Titus. It besieged and conquered the city of Jerusalem, which had been occupied by Jewish zealous, Jewish defenders, zealots, since uh, the year 66. So for four years they had held out. Jerusalem was notoriously difficult to conquer, very difficult. It was it was easy to defend. And so therefore, frequently what would happen is when the Gentiles, like the Babylonians or the Romans, would finally topple the city, they would be so filled with rage at how difficult it had been that they took it out on the, on the defenders and on the city. And so that's what they did. Despite the fact that Titus wanted the temple preserved, they didn't. They burned it. To the ground, and they were determined, the Romans were, filled with rage, to remove even foundation stones so that it couldn't even be seen that there would ever been a city there. The Romans did this kind of thing. And so, that's, it's the fulfillment of Jesus' words, just vindicating Him as an accurate and faithful prophet of God. Now, the spiritual significance is this. Israel had rejected God, so God had rejected Israel. Ezekiel 16 poignantly portrays a spiritual marriage between God and Jerusalem. His love relationship with Jerusalem and through Jerusalem, the people of Israel. But they had betrayed that love and had been spiritually unfaithful to God, spiritually adulterous through idolatry and wickedness. And despite his incredible uh, patience, he swore that he would level it by means of a Gentile nation. And this is, this is his regular pattern. And he said it in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 before Israel even entered the promised land. I'm, I'm going to make you angry by those who are not a nation. I'll make you envious by a nation without understanding. He's clearly predicting Gentile destruction of the Jews if they do not keep the laws of God. And again and again, that's what God did. He would raise up Gentile uh, armies who would come in and trample His people. And in this case, it was the Romans. <coughs> he would pour out uh, wrath on the Jewish nation, and it began what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. Luke 21:24: Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We're in those, time, those times now the times of the Gentiles. What does that mean? It's a shift in the focus of God. First, God would give up the Gentile nations, uh, Gentile nation to, uh, sorry, God would give up the Jewish nation to Gentile armies to be trampled, the Romans. Then He would pour out His grace and mercy on the elect among the Gentiles all over the world to the ends of the earth and rescue them from every tribe and language and people and nation and graft them into a cultivated olive tree, a Jewish olive tree deriving nourishing spiritual sap from the patriarchs, from the Jewish heritage, so we become sons and daughters of Abraham. Meanwhile, Israel experiencing a hardening in part in every generation, some Jews believing in Jesus, but for the most part not, until, we're told, a mystery at the end of time, When God will turn the Jews back to himself through faith in Christ and be saved. And so all Israel will be saved. So that's the whole story of the times of the Gentiles. And part of it includes Gentile domination of the city of Jerusalem. And so this is the prediction of the times of the Gentiles, the destruction of the temple. It is also significant, spiritually significant, because it signals absolutely the end of animal sacrifice and the end of the Jews' ability to perform the Old Covenant physically impossible for them to do. All right, the destruction of the temple clearly means an end to animal sacrifice. The old covenant has come to an end. Now, Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled the animal sacrificial system. Fulfilled it. All right? And once he died on the cross, Hebrews 8:13 says that that old system, that old covenantal system was obsolete and aging would soon disappear. So the writer writing clearly before the destruction of the temple was predicting, I believe there in in Hebrews 8, 13, the destruction of the temple. It would soon disappear. You wouldn't see it at all. Now the moment Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signaling the end of animal sacrifice. And the Jews should have known at that point. The priests should have all repented and come to Christ. There would have been no need for the temple to be destroyed. It would have been a Christian church, and it would have been a symbol of the old covenant animal sacrificial system that has now been fulfilled in Jesus. But they had, through unbelief and hardness of heart, re-established animal sacrifice, sewed up the curtain that was torn in two from top to bottom, re-established all that, and so God had to shut it down, and He did it by the Romans." Now the Jews cannot obey the law of Moses. Please do not say there is a kind of a spiritualized Judaism in which the animal sacrifice is not important. How could anyone ever say that? Read the first five books of Moses. There's an entire book, Leviticus, devoted to animal sacrifice from beginning to end. And so it is essential to the Jewish religion, and it cannot be done. Even more later, when the Muslims built the Dome of the Rock there, Uh, one of their sacred uh, pilgrimage sites uh, at the end of the 7th century. So, Jesus makes the the prediction, not one stone here will be left on another, everyone will be thrown down. Mark 13, 3 and 4, we have this stunned questions by the disciples in private. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Well, that's a simpler version of a more extended question he asks in Matthew 24, verse 3. When will this happen? This being not one stone left on another. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, it's asked in private on the Mount of Olives. So, across... Uh, The Cujan Valley, they're up on on the mountain. They can look down over the temple, I'm sure. They could look down over the city of Jerusalem and they're sitting there privately. The disciples must have certainly been stunned and troubled by Jesus' prediction. They still fully expected that Jesus, the son of David, would just be another David. And that he would reign on a physical throne in Jerusalem and that animal sacrifice would continue because they really didn't understand the need for his own blood to be shed for their sins. That the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin that was waiting for the incarnate Son of God to die. It was essential for their salvation. They didn't understand that. They were picturing Jesus in in a palace of cedar on a throne of gold ruling over the Gentile nations. The idea that those Gentile nations would gain military ascendancy over Jerusalem and destroy it would have been anathema to them. They would have hated it. So they didn't understand any of these things. So the inner circle, the key inner circle, Peter, John, James, and Andrew approach Jesus privately while he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. So this probably was very wise. If the population in general had heard what Jesus was teaching here, they would not have taken it well. So they're coming privately and they're asking for an explanation. Undoubtedly, they could look down over the temple and over Jerusalem while this is going on. And because it's on the Mount of Olives, some scholars call this the Olivet Discourse, especially the longer version in Matthew 24 and 25, or sometimes the Little Apocalypse. Now, in Matthew's gospel, these three questions are woven together, and Jesus' answer to them are woven together in a rather complex tapestry. What are the three questions? Question number one, when will this happen? Namely, the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. Number two, what will be the sign of your coming? The word coming is parousia, meaning the coming or second coming of Christ, which they could not have fully understood, but certainly the parables Jesus tells in Matthew 24 and 25 will prepare them for the parousia, the coming, and He also must have already been teaching, though I'm sure that they didn't understand. What will be the sign of your coming and then of the end of the age? question of the end of the world. These are the three questions in Matthew twenty-four, three. It's not as clear in Mark 13, but they're woven together. The complexity of Mark 13 and of Matthew 24 and 25 is to try to figure out what he's talking about at any moment. Is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? Is he talking about the end of the age? Is he talking about the, the second coming? What is he talking about and how do we understand that? And the, as they go on, the, the questions uh, go much bigger than just the destruction of the temple. They're, they're, they're thinking about everything. Where is all this heading? I mean, if the temple gets destroyed, what's next? Where are we heading? Now, Jesus' answer, I do believe, does include the events connected with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans, but it goes beyond and extends to the entire age right to the end of the world. So therefore, I believe aspects of what Jesus says in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13 have yet to be fulfilled. They're still in front of us. For me, an interpretive key on eschatology from uh, Matthew 24, uh, verse 37, is as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. If I could just keep it simple. As it was, so it will be. So we get recurring themes. You get the theme of the holy place, like the tabernacle, the temple, destroyed, rebuilt, and then this recurring theme. We get the abomination of desolation, which we'll talk about in the New Year. I decided not to preach the Abomination of Desolation week before Christmas. I just thought that would just not feel good with all these Christmas decorations and all. It just didn't seem wise to me. So we'll defer that to the New Year um, and we'll start right up in the New Year with the Abomination of Desolation. We'll get to that. But the, probably the clearest as it was so it'll be a verse, uh, not just Matthew 24, is the teaching on the Antichrist. In 1 John 2:18 it says, "You have heard that antichrist is coming and even now many antichrists have come." So what that means is there's lots of lesser antichrists that come that do dress rehearsals of the final antichrist, but there is an antichrist coming. And so that's uh, what I would say. So also the destruction of Jerusalem in eighty seventy is a foretaste of a final and full destruction that is yet to come. All right, so Jesus begins his answer in verse 5 and 6. And he begins with a warning against spiritual deception. Spiritual deception. Verse 5 and 6, Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. The danger in every era is false teachers and false Christ. Is the single greatest threat to the church. Greater than worldliness, greater than persecution is false doctrine. And so false teachers are going to come in every generation. One of the great hallmarks of many, not all, but many cult leaders is eschatological focus, a sense of the imminent end of the world, and that they themselves are the key leader that God has sent for the people at this end of the world time. It's happened again and again and again. It's a fascinating study of these kinds of cult leaders that proclaim themselves the key leader and that the end is imminent. The Zwickau prophets during the Reformation were like that. The Millerites in the 19th century, they led into the Jehovah's Witnesses that made predictions of the end of the world that did not come true. The Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas and all that, making all of these kinds of... It happens again and again. And Jesus warns. And then he doubles down on verse uh, verse twenty one, twenty two. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. So we'll talk more about that in time. I'm not getting to that today, but I am mentioning it because it, it connects with this idea of false teachers that come and give false doctrine. And that culminates in the Antichrist himself who will be able to work great signs and wonders. It's called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11. The Antichrist was coming, the final one. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason... God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. He allows the Antichrist to work miracles. As Jesus says, to deceive even the elect if that were possible. But it's not possible because you are forewarned in the Scripture. You're told ahead of time this is going to happen. And so you're ready. So you should take this seriously, this idea of a world leader who can do signs and wonders and miracles... And get ready and tell your children and tell your grandchildren. And if you live long enough, tell your great-grandchildren so they'll be ready. Because there will be a generation whose eternal salvation depends on knowing these truths. Forewarned is forearm. Verse 23 in Mark 13. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Now we have the convulsions of a hate-filled dying world in verses 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars... Do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Well, here we have the wickedness of humanity continuing and unfolding. Wars and rumors of wars, empires rising and falling human beings with no love for God and no love for each other, violating overtly the two great commandments, will continue to hate and plunder and kill each other. That's human history. And to some degree, you could argue that it's one of the reasons for history. We wanted an education at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, this is what evil looks like. And God is drawing it out and showing it to us so we can see how awful it is. And then he mentions the physical convulsions of planet Earth, ecological disasters he just calls it famines and earthquakes after adam's sin god cursed the ground because of him it would produce thorns and thistles for him but we know from romans 8 and from personal experience that the curse went beyond just the harvest of thorns and thistles from the ground it extends to every area of physical life here on earth and so romans 820 through 22 makes it plain that god has cursed planet earth because of human sin Earth's ecology, God subjected the earth's ecology to cycles of death and destruction and vanity. Uh, So, earthquakes and famines that Jesus mentions are just evidences of God's curse on the earth. In every generation, earthquakes and famines and other natural disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes, floods, tsunamis, mudslides, plagues, etc., display that the natural order has been cursed because of human sin. It's going to continue. And Jesus says vaguely in various places… It's just going to happen in various places. So he's not trying to be specific. He's saying this is what life's going to be like. It's going to continue like this. These are what I would call non-specific signs. Is there any generation since Jesus in which there weren't famines and earthquakes and nations rising against nation and, and wars and rumors of wars? Every generation. There's no specificity to it. It's just general. But that's what life's going to be like. And Jesus calls them the beginning of birth pains. He uses this language uh, in John 16, also Romans 8, says that creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Jesus talked about the anguish of his own disciples, the anguish they would have when they would see him arrested, beaten, and crucified. But then, on the third day, raised to life, he likens it to birth pains. In John 16, 21-22, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So that's talking about his own resurrection, which is a foretaste of the new heaven and new earth that's coming but the process before is birth pains. Jesus says this, all of the rending and convulsion of planet Earth is the beginning of birth pains, but the end is yet to come, he's saying. Now, that is very hopeful, isn't it? If you look at John 16, Jesus says, it's going to be painful for a while, but after that, you're going to have joy and no one will take away your joy. Now, lasting, eternal, undimmed joy will never happen in this world, but it will happen in the world to come where there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, and pain. And that's what Jesus' resurrection is pointing toward. In the meantime, there is the convulsions and the pain of labor giving birth to something joyful afterwards. In the middle of all of this is the real point of it all, and that is the costly growth of the kingdom of God. History has a purpose And the purpose is the salvation of sinners out of every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the reason for all of it. So wars, rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes that's just the matrix of it or the blank canvas on which the real masterpiece is being painted. And what is that real masterpiece? It is the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, saving people for all eternity. So look what he says about that costly growth of a living kingdom. Verse 10 is, this, is the thesis verse. We're going to spend a whole week on it, God willing, next week. Verse 10 and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. It's amazing, this word gospel, right in the midst of all this darkness and sorrow and misery, is good news. And the good news is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. Salvation through faith in Christ is the gospel. It is the good news. This good news must be preached to all nations in the midst of all these convulsions. The entire gospel of Mark has been about understanding that gospel, that good news. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ or about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, these prophecies that Christ gives here in Mark 13 are incredibly sad and heavy and dark. Not one stone left on another, every one of them thrown down. Wars, rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes in various places, sorrow, destruction, and death. Yet Jesus hopefully calls them birth pains, and what's being birthed is a perfect people of God, redeemed from every tribe, language, and people, and nation through the blood of Christ, through faith in Christ, and a new heaven and new earth, which will be drawn out of this present cosmos through fire, Peter tells us, 2 Peter 3, into perfection. That's what we're heading toward. And Mark 13 10 is the centerpiece of all this. The kingdom of Christ is going to spread through the world, through the proclamation of a verbal gospel, the gospel. So it's not random suffering for no purpose. Rather, God is orchestrating these birth pains to end in eternal joy and glory. Now, the suffering of the messengers of that gospel is clearly predicted. The suffering of the messengers, it's a laborious, a painful journey that the church has to go on. Look at verse 9 through 13. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Wherever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Well, Jesus warns us, his followers, again and again, as the world hated him, it's going to hate us. It's going to hate Christians as well and that hatred is actually going to increase. It's going to be greatly ramped up at the end of the world. Now, the persecution on the messengers of the gospel will be both informal and formal, all right? Informally, family members and friends will betray and hate Christians. Verse 12, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to Death. This is utterly heartbreaking. You look at verse 12 and you're like, what would that actually mean for those people? To have those closest to you hate you and turn you over to death because they hate Jesus. That's how bad it's going to get. The betrayal. But the persecution will also be formal. It would involve synagogues, religious tribunals. Uh, governmental agencies, governors and kings and emperors and presidents and supreme courts and all these formal tribunals that the messengers of the gospel are going to get hauled in front of. This has been a repeated scene in 20 centuries. Is the messenger hauled up in front of the authorities giving an account? It happens again and again and again. The apostle Paul is like the last third of the book of Acts is that. Paul on trial, Paul on trial, Paul on trial. And it is, you know, they're standing before either religious tribunals or governmental um, inquiries, etc. Bottom line, you know, all of that is going to culminate in the hatred of the Antichrist when he controls the government of the entire world and uses his supernatural powers to seek to eradicate the church of Jesus Christ, precipitating the second coming of Christ, I believe. So that tribunal aspect is going to keep coming and the, and the persecutions are going to get worse and worse. Summed up in verse 13, everyone will hate you. It just seems to me like American evangelicals need to understand we're not going to win a popularity contest. We need to understand the truth. The more that our surrounding culture digresses from biblical Christianity, the more they're going to hate us. And we need to be aware of that. And that doesn't mean every single person will hate. There will be unconverted elect who will eventually cross over from death to life. But in general, the world's evaluation of Christians will be fiercely negative. Now in the middle of all of that persecution and tribunals and all of that will be the powerful equipping by the Holy Spirit. The promise of the, of, of the Spirit as power to witness, as Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we need the Spirit's power. The tribunals will be terrifying. The synagogues and the, and the religious councils and the, and the governor's court and all of that. It's going to be terrifying. And we're going to, in our flesh, quail and melt in front of it. But we'll be positioned to be witnesses to them in verse 9 to preach the gospel. Verse 10, Jesus speaks of the violence of the persecutions. It says that they will be betrayed by family members to death to execution. But before that execution happens, the martyrs die, they speak words of witness. The blood of martyrs is seed for the church. They powerfully speak words of witness, empowered by the Spirit of God. He says, don't worry ahead of time what to say, for the Spirit will tell you what to say at that time. Some of the greatest statements in church history have been made by martyrs on trial. They could never have written that material ahead of time. All right? The Holy Spirit knew what to say through them. Very good example of this is in Acts chapter 4. Remember when Peter and John were arrested for doing a miracle and they're brought before the Sanhedrin? And they are so filled with the Holy Spirit and they are absolutely fearless. And they say, if we are hauled in front of this tribunal and asked to give an account for a miracle done to a cripple, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Wow, where did that come from? Holy Spirit came on them. And it says, when they saw the courage, the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they're just regular people, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Stephen's whole speech, saturated with the Spirit of God. So also Polycarp's courageous message when they burned him at the stake in Smyrna at the end of the first century. Felicitas, the Roman noblewoman, said, while I live, I shall defeat you, and if you kill me, I shall defeat you even more. It's one of my favorite statements ever in church history. You can't win, Darth, something like that. Well, not Darth, but anyway. Um, she said it first. I think they stole it from her. There's no way you can win. If you let me go, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. I'm going to keep winning disciples. But if you kill me, then things really take off. It's Awesome. Jan Hus said, what I proclaim with my lips, I now seal with my blood. Martin Luther, though he was not martyred, thought he was going to be martyred, just like John Huss. He said, here I stand, I can do another. Courageous, bold. Do not worry ahead of time. The Holy Spirit will come on you at that trial of faith. Now, the increase of persecution will be a severe test of nominal Christians, people who aren't serious. They're in the habit of going to church, but they're not really Christians. Well, the fires of persecution will weed those people out. In Matthew 24, 10, it says, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. So they're apostates. The increase of wickedness, it says, will cause people's hearts to grow cold. Natural affections will be replaced by animal-like instincts. The survival of the fittest, Matthew 24, 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Now, true Christians can never fall away from Christ. But in the parable of the seed and the soils there is that stony ground here, Remember? That springs up, but when heat comes, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And so Jesus gives a warning to all of his true followers He who stands firm to the end will be saved. So you have to stand firm in your faith through all that persecution. All right, so that's Mark 13, 1 through 13. Let's take some applications now. First and foremost, it's simple come to Christ. Come to Christ. There is macro eschatology. The big story of the world. But then there's your eschatology. Do you know how much longer you have to be alive? Do you know when you're going to die? That's the end of your time here on earth. Do you know when that is? No one knows. And all of this wickedness and convulsions and famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars, all of that is caused the Bible says by sin. And there is one and only one remedy, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Flee to Christ while you can. You don't know how long you have. You've heard the gospel here this morning. All you need to do is repent of your sins, turn away from your sin, and trust in Christ, and you will be forgiven. You'll be forgiven. So come to Christ. Come to Christ for salvation. And then if you're a Christian, come to Christ for wisdom. I love what Peter, John, James, and Andrew do. They they didn't understand, and they came to Jesus privately and said, explain it. Just like with the parables, Jesus gives them the secrets. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but not the outsiders. I'll tell you what you need to know. If you want to know things about the future, come to Christ and ask, and he'll tell you the scripture by the Spirit. He's not going to tell you more than the scripture, but the scripture says everything you need. And so come to Christ for wisdom, and expect it in the scripture's by the Spirit. And then understand the direction of history. History has a direction, it has a purpose. This is not random sorrow and destruction, like there's no purpose at all. No, there's a purpose to everything. History has a direction. Revelation 21, second to last chapter of the Bible, verse 6 and 7, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. History has a journey, It's it's a story being unfolded, and Jesus is that story. I am the Alpha, I am the first letter, and I am the Omega. I am the last letter, beginning and and the end. Then he says, to him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God and he will be my son. That's the purpose of history, salvation. Come to Christ and drink. Come to Christ and drink. And never think that history is spinning out of control. God is sovereign. He is on his throne When the so-called eternal city, Rome, fell to the Vandals in the 5th century, many Christians thought it was the end of the world, but it wasn't. When the Muslims swept across North Africa, destroying lots of good churches, and then swept across the Straits of Gibraltar and conquered all of Spain, and then when they swept up into France in the 8th century, many thought it was the end of the world, but it wasn't. When the Vikings were pillaging and ravaging monasteries and churches all throughout the northern part of Europe and then on into Russia and even down into the Mediterranean and all that, people begged God deliver us from the fear of the Norsemen. They thought it was the end of the world, but it wasn't. When Mongol warriors extended the largest contiguous empire that had ever been, coming in from the Asian steppes and no band of Christian knights could defeat them, and they just won battle after battle after battle. Many thought it was the end of the world, but it wasn't. When the Black Death swept across Europe and killed a third of the population and all of their good luck charms and all of their incantations and all that stuff could not drive it away, they really thought everyone's going to die of this disease. The end of the world is imminent, but it wasn't. When the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, Constantinople, finally fell in the 15th century because of a new invention, cannon with gunpowder, and the... Muslim banners fluttered over Eastern Orthodoxy, over the most significant site of Eastern Orthodoxy, and the back door to Europe was finally thrown open, it seemed, to Turkish invasion. Many thought the end of the world was imminent. Martin Luther did, but it wasn't. And the 20th century dawned with a war to end all wars, and millions died in that senseless conflict. And when European poets said, I see the lights of humanity extinguished all over Europe and we shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. And then 20 years later, an even worse war came with an even more terrifying scourge, Nazism, subjugating one nation after another. It seemed they could never be defeated. Many thought the end of the world was imminent, but it wasn't. So also communism, when it spread from one country to the next, the dominoes were toppling in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America and all kinds of places. And it was godless atheism and openly hostile to the church. Many thought the end of the world was imminent, but it wasn't. Now there will come a time the end of the world will come, but God is sovereign over all these things. In every one of these cases, the church continued and even flourished. Nothing can stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's rest assured in that and realize what our calling is. Our calling is to be holy and to spread the gospel. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to begin this study in eschatology in Mark 13. I uh, Thank you for the themes that Jesus lays out, and he tells us very clearly ahead of time what's going to happen. Lord, continue to strengthen us for our mission in this world, that we would be courageous and clear and bold and unafraid of what's happening with governments, unafraid of what's happening with natural disasters, knowing that we will suffer. It's not going to be painless, but we know also all of it has a glorious purpose. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, this is Andy Davis. I hope that you've enjoyed this sermon. For more of my resources, please go to twojourneys.org and may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you as you continue to serve him.